This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Arthur Slutsky. He is the Professor of Medicine, Surgery, and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Toronto and Vice President of Research at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Slutsky, uh, welcome. Um, for the past 25, 30 years, there's been no more important area in critical care than understanding acute lung injury. You've been in research over that time uh, doing some of the seminal studies and some of your review articles many of us have relied on over the years to understand where the field is. I'm wondering if we could start by talking about the recent revision of the definition of acute lung injury. Uh, for years, uh, many of us you know, were comfortable uh, with the American-European consensus definition. And then, of course, in the last year, the Berlin definition emerged. Could you tell us why, um, why did it emerge? Uh, what are the salient changes? But really, what was the motivation to say we need a new definition? So thanks. Uh, it's great, great to be here. Um, I think we felt we needed a new definition for a, a number of reasons. The main reason, actually, is that we have a we've had a terrible definition of ARDS. And I must say that even with the new definition, we still have a less terrible definition of ARDS. Hmm. We'd like a definition that was based on a biomarker so you can make a definitive diagnosis, you know, for example, myocardial infarction. You know, the current definition is really a definition of a syndrome. So you've got, you've got a clinical manifestations that, that includes uh, chest X-ray and oxygenation, et cetera. But it's not necessarily specific for what we pathologically think of as ARDS. There's nothing in the current previous definition or the current definition with regard to inflammation. There's nothing with regard to increased alveolar capillary permeability. All the things we know make up ARDS. So what I've said, though, is actually uh, an indictment, if you like, of the old definition and of the new definition. We felt that we should at least look at it and see if we could clean up some of the things about the definition. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. The old definition had acute lung injury as patients who had PF ratio less than 300. But the way it was often used, in fact, used most of the time, was to say uh, the less severe patients, the patients with PF between 200 and 300. So if you look at it, you'll often see in the literature, there'll be an example of someone says, well, if the patient has ALI, you do the following. If they have ARD, you do the following. And ALI, and I think most people's minds in that context, was PF between 200 and 300. In fact, the definition, uh, ARDS is a, in the old definition was a subset of acute lung injury. So it was quite, quite confusing. And if you go back to some of the papers that have come out over the last 15 years, you'll see that. The other thing that, in terms of the nomenclature, um, you'll often see ALI slash ARDS. Well, that doesn't really make any sense because ARDS is a subset of ALI. Why, why would you put a slash? So there's a lot of confusion in that regard. So that's from a nomenclature. Well, you don't need a new definition necessarily to deal with the nomenclature, but that's, that was confusing and, and set people up, I think, to, to um, give the wrong answer, if you like, in terms of thinking about ARDS. 
We also try to, to do a number of things in terms of the definition to make it a little more specific. The old definition, for example, had nothing about peep level. So you could be, the PF ratio had to be less than 300 or 200, but it didn't say anything about peep level. So for some trials, people would often put the patient on zero peep, and you get a PF less than 300. If you had some peep, the PF could be greater than 300. So this current definition actually tries to solve that uh, problem. So at least there's a minimum of, of five centimeters of PEEP. We also tried to do a, a number of other things that actually to some extent didn't work out. We tried to see could we include a variable that includes dead space? Because we know that patients who have increased dead space do more poorly. And in fact, when we looked at measurements of bed, dead space are actually quite complex. So we said, well, let's take minute ventilation as a surrogate for dead space. Turned out when we added that variable to the definition, uh, in a simulated definition, didn't really add much to our uh, understanding. So there were a number of things like that that actually didn't turn out. So I think what this new definition does, it, it cleans up some things on the edges. It's not a revolutionary new definition. I think that a revolutionary definition will include eventually, I don't know if it'll be five years or 10 years or two years, some biomarker that's pretty specific for the, the arrangement we see at the alveolar capillary uh, level in terms of alveolar capillary, uh, both permeability and injury. So I think what this, the, old, the new definition does, as I said, clean up things a little bit, make it a little more um, internally consistent, but I think it has many of the flaws, quite frankly, as the old definition. Uh, Dr. Slutsky, I wonder if we could turn now, um, with all your experience um, in research, but I should also add, um, in all your years of experience in critical care, you're the uh, Chief Emeritus of uh, Critical Care um, uh, at the University of Toronto, where for many years you directed the Adult Critical Care Unit. You know these issues professionally, and you know these issues from research. What are the salient studies over the last 25, 30 years that guided our understanding on what we understand today to be ventilator-associated lung injury. How would you put that together for us? So let me, let me first say that um, there's been a lot that we've learned over the past 25 years, but in fact, there's, um, the concept of ventilator-induced lung injury goes back over 250 years. And let me, let me show you a couple slides that uh, address this issue. This was taken from an article published in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of Medicine in 1744. I'm sure this is a journal that all of you uh, read on a regular basis uh, in the uh, critical care pediatric world. But it, the title of this article is Observations on a Case Published in the Last Volume of the Medical Essays of Recovering a Man Dead in Appearance by Distending the Lungs with Air. And it was by John Fothergill. And what the article said, and I'm actually going to quote from it, he described a case in which a physician by the name of Tosak came upon a man who had suffocated because of fumes from a coal pit. And what he did, what the physician did, what Tosak did, was he applied his mouth close to the patient's. So here was a patient who was pulseless, who was not breathing, and he basically used mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. And as uh, stated here, he said, and by blowing strongly, raised his chest fully, he immediately felt six or seven quick beats of the heart, so it looked like the patient now had a pulse. And in one hour, the patient began to come to himself. Within four hours, he walked home and as many days returned to work. Pretty remarkable outcome. You know, clearly not a randomized controlled trial, but pretty impressive. But what was interesting about this case report 
was not the fact that this patient sort of survived, but the discussion. And what Father Grill said, he said, some had suggested a bellows, that is, instead of using mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, actually a device, like a ventilator, to push gas into the lung. But he said, but blowing would be preferable, that is, it would be better to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, as the lungs of one man may bear, and here is the key thing, without injury, as great a force as those of another man, which by the bellows cannot always be determined. So clearly, back then, this is over 250 years ago, he really presaged sort of our understanding about mechanical ventilation causing injury to the lungs. Mm. And I think that this concept was sort of lost for 240 plus years, but over the last number of years has come back. And there's been a, a number of things that I think we've learned, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some, some details about ventilator-induced lung injury, but I think there's some general concepts that are worthwhile highlighting. One is that mechanical ventilation is like any therapy. We always said mechanical ventilation is life-saving, and, and it is life-saving. I don't think we really thought that there's a lot of injury that can be caused by it. So like any drug, there's side effects. Well, there's side effects to mechanical ventilation. Turned out to be pretty darn important, some of these side effects. The other thing we, I think we've realized at a high level is, um, from a philosophical perspective, we used to always try to get blood gases in the normal range. We tried to have a PCO2 of 40 and a pH of 7.4, but we paid a price for that. And the price is more ventilation to get the PCO2 down. I think we now realize that that balance is not necessarily right if patients have underlying lung disease. So there's been a change in philosophy that I think is, uh, is really quite important to mechanical ventilation and in fact to the ICU uh, in many respects, whether it be how much hemoglobin you give or whatever therapy we want. If we give too much, that's potentially harmful. So that, that's sort of a couple of general concepts. Let me take you through a couple of or a few key concepts related to ventilator-induced lung injury. What are the underlying mechanisms? Why are they important? And how might we change therapy based on them? So Jeff, what I'd like to give you now is just before going into the mechanism of ventilator-induced lung injury, review some key physiologic concepts underlying ventilator-induced lung injury, largely in the context of ARDS. You know, 250 years ago, maybe one of the most common causes of patients with respiratory problems was fumes from a cold, but clearly not the case now. ARDS is pretty com relatively common. So first of all, I think the key concept is ARDS is a heterogeneous disease. That's changed in the last 30 years. We used to think of ARDS as a pretty homogeneous disease. You make the diagnosis on a PHS film, look pretty homogeneous everywhere. Turns out that's not the case. This particular slide is taken from a study by Gattinoni, published in Anesthesiology you know, 25 plus years ago, and shows a patient on the left on PEEP of five centimeters of water, and on the right, PEEP of 15 centimeters of water. As you can see, there's quite a bit of heterogeneity. In the dependent lung regions, there's collapse, there's fluid, atelectasis. In the non-dependent regions, the, air, the lungs look relatively normal. In fact, they are injured, but they look relatively normal. On the right, after 15 centimeters of PEEP, there's some recruitment. But the important point here is that there's lungs, parts of the lung that are, are grossly affected, parts that are relatively normal. What that means is when you give a tidal volume, if it goes preferentially to the well-aerated regions, even a small tidal volume can stretch the lungs a lot. And I'll talk about that as a potential mechanism. So that's one key concept. 
One way of looking at this is to look at the pressure volume curve of the lung. It's something that we all learned in medical school. We probably think it's, what's, what, how is that useful for clinical practice? And on this slide, I want to show you how I think that this is potentially useful to think about the pressure volume curve and interpret it not just as some abstract algebraic figure, but how it relates to what's happening to the lung. So this uh, slide is a pressure volume curve. X-axis is pressure, Y-axis is volume. And this is going to trace, I'm going to trace what happens as pressure is put into the lung, as gas is pushed into the lung, and what happens to the picture of the lung. So now we go to a pressure of four centimeters of water. You can see not very much gas has entered. The y-axis hardly has changed. And if you look at the picture, not much difference. We go to eight centimeters of water, a little more gas has entered. And as we go to 12 centimeters of water, you can see that there is a big increase in the volume that enters the lung. That, that point at eight is called the inflection point. You may have seen that in the literature. And you can see what that tells you is now, with a given change in pressure, a lot more gas goes in. But if you look at the picture, you'll notice that the lung is very heterogeneously inflated. The black areas represent adlactatic regions, the white areas um, well-aerated regions. As we go a little bit higher, the lungs become more homogeneously inflated. And finally, at a pressure of 20, the lung is homogeneously inflated and fully inflated. Now, let's look what happens on deflation. As we lower the pressure, I've lowered it, I've shown it lower to about eight centimeters of water. You can see interestingly at the same eight centimeters of water, the lung is pretty f homogeneously inflated uh, compared to what it was before at eight centimeters of water. And as we go further down, still stays homogeneously inflated and finally goes down to zero and it collapses again. That difference between the ascending limb and the descending limb is what we call hysteresis. And again, I'm sure Many of the viewers have heard the term hysteresis in papers and remember from medical saying, well, well, big deal, what does it mean? Well, just look at those pictures. That's what I think you should be thinking about when you think about hysteresis. Not, as I said, some esoteric term, but it has huge implications for the lung. It also tells us, this picture, why we might want to do a recruitment maneuver, why we might want to inflate the lungs, because we make it both increase homogeneously, but also if you look at four centimeters or eight centimeters of water there before inflation, just imagine the terrible gas exchange that this uh, patient would be getting. So you want to inflate the lung to have it homogeneously inflated and allow for gas exchange. So that's what it looks like statically when we look at pressure uh, and a pressure volume curve. I'd also like to now show you what this looks like when we're looking at this dynamically. And I'm going to do that by showing you a video of an ex vivo rat lung. Take it out of a, uh, a normal rat, normal lung, and we ventilate it with tidal volume of about seven ml per kilogram, starting first at zero pressure, and then we're gonna increase pressure to about 15 centimeters of water. Sim similar to what you might do with a patient in the ICU, putting them on PEEP. So let me start this now, and then, and partway through this, the video, uh, we're gonna increase the PEEP, and I'll, I'll point that one out when that is. So here we are, we've started to ventilate the lung with uh, zero PEEP. You can see the areas that are looked relatively normally inflated, but some areas are clearly collapsed. We're now at this point going to increase the PEEP, and you can see the PEEP's been increased. Now with each breath, the lung is being inflated, but those areas of collapse are slowly being recruited. And you can see there's a couple of areas left of collapse. That last that area was recruited, now the final area. 
Now the lung is pretty inflated, maybe overinflated, but homogeneous. We're now going to decrease the PEEP to back to zero. First breath, normally inflated, homogeneous. Next breath, you'll see these areas of collapse uh, restart and are, are back again. So this video, I think, clearly shows a, a number of features that I think are important and important for our, our patients in the ICU. First of all, when you inflate the lung and do a recruit maneuver, you can see that it took time. In this particular uh, video, it took about three or four breaths. But in fact, in patients who have atelectasis, who have um, inflammatory exudates, who have fluid in the lung, it can take much longer. It can take up to hours. But the time course is important. Secondly, the other point I'd like to note from this is that after the lung is inflated and recruited, if we don't uh, maintain a PEEP level at high levels, the lung goes back to its original state. So doing a recruitment maneuver and then coming back to the same PEEP level that was used before, if you had a problem with recruitment, it's not really going to do much. In fact, it may cause injury because you're in inflating the lung, letting it de-recruit, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. So third, I think that uh, although this lung is clearly different than patients in the ICU, I mean, nobody's ventilating along the ICU without a chest wall. I guess, well, I guess some patients have an open chest, but without a chest wall, I think the concepts are still valid. The chest wall would change things, so the, the differences would not be as dramatic in terms of the deflation and inflation, but I think conceptually, this is worthwhile. So when you're ventilating a patient, I think it's worthwhile to think, what's happening in the lung? Because I think, I, certainly I, I understand things better if I have a visual image. And I think that's what I think the purpose of this, to give a visual image. The other, the other last point relates to clearly the, to the topic here, and that's the ventilator-induced lung injury. You can imagine when the lung collapses and reopens, collapses and reopens, that can cause injury, athletic trauma, which I'll talk about. And you could see when the lung was fully inflated with lots of PEEP, it looked like it was just busting at the seams. That can cause injury. Those are the two major physical mechanisms. And now I'd like to ask our audience, if you could please first state your city and country. And the question is, in your practice, do you routinely perform a recruitment maneuver? If so, to what inflating pressure and for how long do you perform that recruitment maneuver? Before we return to Dr. Slutsky's talk, please take a moment to respond to this question. In speaking about a recruitment maneuver, as you know, we talk about it all the time. It's reported in the literature. How would you uh, characterize either from evidence and what's been done in the literature or in your own practice, how do you do a recruitment maneuver? What is it? Yeah, so, so I think that's a very good question. First of all, there is no one recruitment maneuver. There's different ways of doing the recruitment maneuvers. In the past, we've used 40 centimeters of water for 40 seconds. Others have used 30 centimeters of water for 30 seconds. Both are probably, the, the, uh, may be potentially dangerous if you're not careful. And certainly one has to be at the bedside because the hemodynamic consequences can be pretty severe. It turns out there's other ways of doing it without necessarily having a, a fixed pressure for a fixed period of time. If you increase the PEEP level or increase the delta P, the peak inspiratory pressure for a short period of time, you can do the same thing probably in a safer way. And there are studies in the literature that suggest that there's different approaches and I won't go over the details of those studies at the moment, but one can review that in the literature. And I think the, the best way is probably somewhat safer to actually increase PEEP, increase the delta P. And that way, with each breath, 
you, you know, you're not having the same impact on hemodynamics. One of the most uh, well-known types of uh, ventilator just lung injury mechanism is that called barotrauma, which is growth air leaks, which relates to pneumothoraces, subcutaneous emphysema, basically air where it shouldn't be. And the mechanism for this was sorted out by Macklin and Macklin in the 1940s. I think this is pretty well known, so I don't think I have to spend any more time on it. The other major mechanism, something called volutrauma, where when you overinflate the lung, you actually cause increased alveolar capillary permeability and can cause edema. And there was a very nice study from Webb and Tierney back in 1974 in which they ventilated rats for one hour. Uh, this picture here shows on the left, rats ventilated for one hour at peak inspiratory pressure of 14 centimeters of water or peak inspiratory pressure of 45 centimeters of water. And you can see at 45 centimeters of water on the far right, the lung looks basically like a liver. It's edematous. Many of the animals died. That's because they had increased capillary permeability. Dreyfus showed in 1988 that in fact the key variable here was lung stretch, not pressure per se, in a very uh, elegant but simple study in which he looked at different pressures, same pressure rather, with different tidal volumes. So he ventilated with high tidal volume, which required high pressure, or he put a strap around the chest wall and the abdomen of the animals and ventilated with a small tidal volume, but because of the decreased compliance, you had to use a high pressure. And what that led to was when there was a high, high tidal volume, lung stretch, there was increased lung water. Lungs got edematous. With the normal size tidal volume or low tidal volume, there wasn't that increase. That's where the term volume trauma wasn't related to pressure per se, or certainly not related to airway pressure per se, but related to lung stretch. That's not surprising. This is a, a, I'd like to show this slide because I think it really gets the concept across. Bauhaus was interested in the physiology of musical instruments. And what he showed here was that when someone played the oboe, that's number one shown here, if you look at pressure on the x-axis, lung volume on the y-axis, the, patient, the, uh, the musician blows into the oboe, the pressure goes to about 25 centimeters of water, blows for 30 seconds, lung volume decreases. If you look at the curve on the right, that the trumpet player, you can see that Satchmo Armstrong, when, he's, when he was blowing the tr trumpet, was generating pressures of 150 centimeters of water. Wow, if we had saw that in the ICU, we'd know that that patient's developing pneumothorax. Now, it's not the case. They, the magicians do that hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a day. So why is that? It's because the pressure is generated by s squeezing the respiratory muscles, and so the pleural pressure is also very high. And that's shown on a figure taken from a re recent review article on ventilator-induced lung injury, and basically shows that if you look at the uh, trumpet player on the far bottom left, that the alveolar pressure is 150 centimeters of water, but the pleural pressure is 140 centimeters of water. And that's quite a bit different than um, panel C, for example, with a patient with a stiff chest wall. There, the alveolar pressure is 30. Think of that as plateau pressure. So you'd maybe be worried that the plateau pressure is too high. But because of the stiff chest wall, the pleural pressure is 25 centimeters of water. So the transpulmonary pressure, which is a key variable, is only five. So I think it's useful to think about what is the transpulmonary pressure when we're thinking about ventilator and lung injury. And that can be difficult because it's hard to measure that uh, at the bedside. 
You can estimate it using esophageal pressure, drop an esophageal balloon, but the absolute uh, value of the esophageal pressure is, is debatable uh, in the supine position for a number of reasons. So even that is not a gold standard way to get transpulmonary pressure. Although there have been a number of studies uh, that, have, that have looked at this, and it may be a useful method in the future for trying to estimate the transpulmonary pressure. What do we do at the bedside? Our clinical assessment. We often, and often this is the case in pediatrics, use peak inspiratory pressure. It's useful, but it can be very misleading, and I think it's useful to understand where it can be misleading. If you have a patient who has either airways narrowing or you have a small endotracheal tube, the peak pressure can be high because of flow resistance. So it's important to remember that peak inspiratory pressure tells you about the flow resistance and tells you about the stiffness of the respiratory system. So if you put a small, a tiny endotracheal tube and you can have very high peak airway pressures, it doesn't mean the patient's at any increased risk for ventilator-induced lung injury. The next approach would be the plateau pressure, where you stop flow, measure at end inspiration what the pressure is in a passive patient. If the patient's breathing, it can be hard to interpret. But here, too, you can be fooled. If you have a patient with massive ascites, we've all had patients with massive ascites, you look at the chest x-ray and the lungs look teeny, and yet the plateau pressure is very high. So in those situations, it's actually very important from a clinical perspective because in those situations, you don't want to limit the plateau pressure to 30. If you do, your patient may be hypoxic, you may be putting the patient in greater danger. So plateau pressure is useful, but it's certainly not, a, not, it's not the answer. And finally, as I mentioned, since the important factor is alveolar overdistension, transpulmonary pressure may be useful. We don't have enough data to say that this should be used clinically, currently, but certainly it's something that, that should be and is being studied in, in various research uh, venue. The, the last physical mechanism I want to talk to you about is, is adlectrauma, and that's ventilation at low lung volumes. And this is taken from a study that uh, we published uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, looking at an ex vivo lung model and ventilating it with different strategies. We looked at four different strategies, either control, which is labeled number four, just kept CPAP at five for, uh, for two hours. Or we used PEEP of zero, PEEP of four, or PEEP that was greater than that inflection point I mentioned uh, earlier. And then we looked at the pressure volume curves. This is the control animals. And you can see before or after two hours of CPAP, you can't even, it's hard to tell the difference between those curves. They're virtually lying on top of one another. However, when we ventilated with PEEP at zero or PEEP of four, there's a marked decrease in compliance. The lower curves represent the pressure volume curves after two hours of ventilation. You can see a marked decrease in compliance. And when we ventilated animals with PEEP greater than the inflection point of about 16 or centimeters of uh, 17 centimeters of water, you can see that the compliance was essentially the same. So you can get injury that's caused by ventilation at low lung volumes uh, as well as high lung volumes. We also looked at pathology of the lungs um, for the various groups. And the y-axis on this curve represents total airway injury score. And the x-axis is the ventilation mode. So you can see going to PEEP of zero had a marked increase in total airway injury score compared to control. PEEP of four was slightly less, but still greater than control. And PEEP of 16, which is greater than the inflection point, 
essentially no airway injury score. So we kept the lung open. So this, this second mode of injury called ethylic trauma, I think is important because it's injury that's caused by collapse and reopening of lung units. There's other mechanisms that are operative, maybe hypoxia as the lung collapses, uh, number of mechanisms, but that can lead to lung injury as well. And it's shown very nicely on this Webb and Tierney slide. I showed the slide before, and I had the, the left, and I talked about the left panel and the, and the far right uh, lungs, ventilated with 14 and 45. If you look in the center, there's also a, a, a lungs from an animal that were ventilated with a peak inspiratory pressure of 45. It looks pretty normal. It almost looks like the 14. And the reason for that is that that lung was ventilated with a peep of 10. So preventing adelic trauma. So preventing that collapse and reopening saved the lung, protected the lung. So in summary, if we think about the physical factors causing ventilator-induced lung injury, there's ventilator-induced lung injury at high lung volumes, barotrauma and volutrauma, and there's physical factors causing adelic trauma or ventilator-induced lung injury at low lung volumes. Those are the two physical factors leading to ventilator-induced lung injury. And now, we would like to turn to our audience. If you could please first state your city and country. In your practice, what strategy or strategies are in place to avoid ventilator-induced lung injury? For example, do you have a protocol that targets ideal tidal volume, PEEP, and peak or plateau pressure? If so, would you be willing to share it? Of course, everyone is wondering, what do you do in your practice? What would you recommend as a mode of ventilation to both avoid barotrauma and avoid adelect trauma and volume trauma? So, so let me start. I can actually an answer it, I think, pretty quickly. I think there are modes like high-frequency ventilation, which we don't use anymore as an early um, mode for, for early ARDS because of recent trials that have appeared. But in terms of the modes, I don't think it really matters. I don't think we have any evidence that any one mode makes a difference. What's important is the strategy one uses. And I think the strategy that a lot of this work in ventilator-induced lung injury suggests is try to use relatively high PEEP and try to minimize end inspiratory distension. So I think those concepts are more important than what the mode is, certainly in terms of ventilator-induced lung injury. And could I push you a little bit on the high-frequency comment? Um, you're certainly referring to the recent adult trials comparing high-frequency uh, versus conventional modes, and in particular one trial which showed um, actually a, a decreased survival with high-frequency. Um, would you go so far as to say that's true in the pediatric population as well? Is there evidence to say that high-frequency um, is deleterious um, in the pediatric population? No, I don't know of any evidence that suggests that uh, high-frequency ventilation is deleterious in the pediatric population. I think um, the evidence that it's markedly advantageous is not so great either. So I think we just have to be a little bit careful. I, I don't treat pediatric uh, ARDS or pediatric ca uh, case of respiratory failure, but I think we have to be a little care more careful than we would have been uh, two years ago. If you would ask me that question two years ago, I'd say theoretically high-frequency ventilation is the answer or an answer. Um, and certainly the way it was applied, and I was part of one of the studies, uh, it, didn't do any, it didn't do any good. Well, we, we just have to be careful when we're applying it to, to the pediatric group because the evidence in support of it is, is, is stronger than the adults, but not very strong. And now I'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world. And again, if you could first write your city and country location. The question is, 
Do you currently use high-frequency oscillatory ventilation for your pediatric patients in ARDS? If so, do you use high-frequency oscillatory ventilation for rescue therapy of those patients with ARDS who fail conventional therapy? Or do you use high-frequency oscillatory ventilation early in the course of managing your patients with ARDS? Finally, Dr. Slesky, um, I wonder if we could turn to probably one of the most notable trials in critical care in the last 30 years, high versus low tidal volume, New England Journal of Medicine, 2000, and showed enormous survival benefit for low tidal volume ventilatory strategy in acute lung injury, ARDS. Um, what is the source of the survival benefit? In our ICUs, and I'm sure in yours, we have some patients, a few, who die of terminal hypoxemia and hypoxia, but most of them don't. Most of them die from multiple organ failure. So why would low tidal volumes provide that degree of survival benefit? So I think that's a really important question, and, and I'll give you some suggestions of an answer. I can't have the definitive answer. First of all, um, I was on the data safety monitoring board for that trial, and when we stopped the trial, I was sure that the patients would either have better oxygenation, would have much less barotrauma as the explanation. Turned out that wasn't the case at all. In fact, in terms of oxygenation, for the first three days after the start of the uh, low tidal volume or high tidal volume, oxygenation was actually worse when you look at PF ratio for the low tidal volume group that had a better outcome. So that was sort of surprising to me. And barotrauma, there wasn't much difference as well. So there, are probably, there may be another explanation, and this is just a hypothesis. It actually turns out to be an area that I'm particularly interested in, and that's the concept of, of biotrauma. And what do I mean by biotrauma? It's, the, it's, a, it's really biological trauma. It's, it's a term we coined a number of years ago with Lorraine Tremblay to indicate there's biological things happening due to physical phenomena, and it was a, the correlate to barotrauma, so we thought that people would understand that. And it's, therefore, it's the release of mediators in the lung and the effects caused by the release of these mediators systemically. And it's that local and markedly, most importantly, the systemic effects that, with that at least, I think, may explain the, the decreased mortality with the low tidal volume. So let me, let me take you a little bit further in terms of what biotrauma is. So this, I'm going to show you some data from a study we published a number of years ago in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. The hypothesis we set out to, to investigate was whether injurious ventilatory strategies, those are the lows, ones with adelic trauma and overdistension, could lead to an increase in inflammatory mediators. In this case, we measured largely cytokines. And we used that isolated rat lung model, which, which I showed the video of earlier. And we ventilated the, uh, the uh, animals, actually ventilated the lungs, the ex vivo lungs, using four different ventilatory strategies shown on the slide ventilatory strategy with a control group with small PEEP, low-level PEEP, small tidal volume, higher PEEP, large tidal volume, and medium volume with zero PEEP. And those, that was 15 ml per kilo. And then we had one that had a group that had high volume, zero PEEP. And that was a large tidal volume, 40 ml per kilogram. Uh, I know that many of the viewers might say, well, gee, that's a ridiculously high tidal volume. We'd never use that tidal volume in patients. Well, my guess is actually we all have used that equivalent to that tidal volume in patients. And that's because if we think about the CT scans that I showed earlier, 
that had a um, patient with ARDS. Some patients, three quarters of the lung is socked in and collapsed and not available for ventilation. If you use a tidal volume of 10 ml per kilo in that patient, it's going to a quarter of the lung. So the regional overdistension is equivalent to that if you had a normal lung and used 40 ml per kilo. So that's why I think this is relevant. In any event, what we showed was that we measured a number of mediators. This is lavage levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha. There's a key mediator in the sepsis cascade. And you can see that from control um, to medium volume high PEEP to medium volume zero PEEP, there's a, about a six-fold increase in TNF. And high volume zero PEEP, there was about a 50 to 60-fold increase. There's a break in the axis there. That's a huge increase. And now this is now a biochemical marker. So could this TNF have an effect on the lung or elsewhere? And that gets to the, I think, where the answer to your question may be, or one possible answer, and that is the systemic consequences of biotrauma. So the, if you think about the lung and the ventilator, it's really a, a system. And it's, uh, it's one that's unique because the lung itself is unique because all the blood flow essentially flows through the lung. It's a huge vascular bed with lots of neutrophils marginated, neutrophils just waiting to pounce on bacteria that are, that are in the alveoli. So they're ready, uh, ready to act. The lung also has this huge surface area. So we breathe in, we have this tennis court sized um, uh, epithelium, and the epithelium and endothelium are very active, active uh, organ in fact, that could produce a lot of mediators. So the, the lung is, is just set to, to be a key organ that can cause, uh, potentially cause injury by releasing mediators. So in this particular study, we set out to see whether in fact is something we do to the lung, can it have an impact in the circulation? And this was now an acid aspiration model in rats. We used four ventilatory strategies, 16 tidal volume without PEEP or with PEEP, five tidal volume, five mils per kilogram tidal volume without PEEP or with PEEP. And then we measured serum cytokine levels shown here. X-axis is time, TNF on the Y-axis. There's one uh, group that had a marked increase in TNF over the four hours. That's the high volume zero PEEP group. So what we're doing to the lung can now cause mediators to appear in the circulation. What does all this mean? Well, we, we went to, uh, uh, and did a study in rabbits to see whether we could look at some impact on distal organs of the mediators. And in this, in this study, we looked at rabbits. We, we looked uh, at the anesthetized rabbits given intratracheal hydrochloric acid pretty good model, I think, for ARDS. And they were randomized into two groups and then ventilated for eight hours. An injurious group with a high tidal volume, 17 ml per kilo, zero PEEP, or a non-injurious group with a low tidal volume and high PEEP of 11. Those numbers were picked to have the same mean airway pressure to have the same effect on, on hemodynamics. And then we measured blood pressure, various enzyme cytokines, and, and most importantly, we measured apoptosis by tunnel assay on, of distal organs. This is an example of data from that uh, paper. Um, this is a tunnel assay uh, in the kidney. On the left is non-injurious ventilatory strategy, and on the right is the injurious ventilatory strategy. Those arrows point to um, apoptotic cells, cells that are undergoing programmed cell death. That was in the kidney, this was in the small intestine, and in the villi of the intestine, we saw the same thing, but not necessarily in the crypts, not in the crypts at all. 
And here's just a summary of, of the data. Now this is um, analyzed by uh, the individual who's blinded to the, to the group that these animals are in. And you can see that kidney had a marked increase in the apoptotic index, as did the villi uh, of the gut. So this says that we're, we're ventilating the lung with a, a two different strategies, no effect on blood pressure, and we're having a marked effect on something biochemical uh, in the kidney and other organs. And we showed in that paper that there's inflammatory, there are various mediators released into the circulation that might explain this. So this is what we've called biotrauma with release of mediators and their impact. The other, the other um, potential mechanism is not just mediators that can be released, bacteria could potentially be released from the lung. You have a patient who's either got pneumonia or uh, colonized. This is a study from uh, Verbruge who examined the uh, impact of changing peak inspiratory pressure and PEEP on bacteremia. And they studied 80 rats given intratracheal klebsiella, ventilated with four strategies, uh, either 13 centimeters of water with PEEP of three, or 13 over zero, 30 over 10, or 30 over zero. And they did this for three hours um, where they injected the bacteria, and 22 hours later they did the ventilation. And then they measured blood cultures, and this shows the blood cultures. And you can see that on the far right, the 30 over zero, so peak inventory pressure of 30, PEEP of zero, there's a marked increase in the number of animals who develop bacteremia. That's pretty dramatic, and many of our patients are colonized, so this may be a mechanism as well for how ventilation strategy impacts um, end organ dysfunction. So, you know, the question is, um, we've shown that biotrauma is active and probably important in animals. I don't think there's any question about that. But is it important in humans? And I would suggest that, that it is. And here's the underlying um, schema of what we think is happening. And this may answer directly your question about what I think has happened in the uh, ARDS network study that was published in 2000. We've known for many years that mechanical ventilation caused biophysical injury. Causes over distension, cyclic lung stretch. That can have an impact on alveolar capillary permeability. And importantly, it can have an impact on cardiac output and cardiac organ perfusion. We also know now that there's biochemical injury, biotrauma, release of mediators. That can release mediators into the lung. Some of those mediators are chemokines. They can attract neutrophils to the lung and release more mediators. And most importantly, because the mechanical ventilation itself increases alveolar capillary permeability, or a patient has ARDS and has increased alveolar capillary permeability, some of those mediators can get released in the systemic circulation and lead to distal organ dysfunction. And that distal organ dysfunction, as you said, is what's associated with death. Most patients who, who die with ARDS don't die of hypoxemic death, they die of multiple system organ dysfunction. So that's the underlying um, mechanism or approach. So why do I think biotrauma is important? Well, first of all, biotrauma occurs in humans. It's not just uh, something that's relegated to the animal lab. This is from a trial that was associated with uh, Marco Ranieri, which we um, randomized patients with ARDS to a control ventilatory strategy or to a strategy with lung protection. And I'll just show you the results shown here. This is on the left, bronchoalveolar lavage fluid, and on the far left is TNF uh, for the control group, 
The next panel over is lung protective group. And as you can see on the x-axis, we have 0, 24, and 36 hours. The y-axis is TNF levels. This is a log plot, so it goes from 10. The middle one is, is uh, 1,000 and, and so on. So you can see there's a, a significant increase in bronchoalveolar lavage in the control animals and, and, and control animals, control humans with ARDS and TNF, whereas in the lung protective group, there was a marked decrease. The same was true in plasma, although the decrease in TNF in the plasma in the lung protective group shown on the far right was not quite uh, significant, but still very similar to what we saw in uh, our animals. And uh, in a separate group looked at this as well. Stuber published this a number of years ago. They took a patient with ARDS, had them on a lung protective strategy, then used a lower PEEP and somewhat higher tidal volume, and then went back to the lung protective strategy. And here's what they found. This is now various cytokines. If you focus on IL-6, for example, you can see after one hour of low PEEP, high tidal volume ventilation, there's a marked increase in IL-6. It stayed elevated till six hours. When the strategy was changed to more lung protective, you can see that IL-6 went back towards, to, towards its normal baseline. So these data, I think, show that, that biotrauma definitely occurs in humans to the extent that there's release of mediators that's related to ventilatory strategy. Of course, this doesn't tell us that they cause end organ failure uh, or have nasty effects, but certainly release of mediators is related to ventilation. This particular study I'm going to show you by Parsons and colleagues actually addressed the question almost directly because what they took was samples from the original ARDSNET study and looked at various cytokine levels. And what they showed was the percent reduction of the various cytokines in the 6 ml per kilo group versus the 12 ml per kilo group in the first three days. And you can see for IL-6, IL-8, and IL-10, the percent reduction was much faster in the 6 ml per kilo group. So this suggests that the, the mechanism, biotrauma mechanism, may explain the reduction in mortality. It certainly does not prove it, but at least it's in the right direction. Uh, Dr. Slutsky, that's very interesting work, um, and I've uh, read your reviews and your, your, your work on this in the past, and, it, and one of the lines I think you used was that the lung could uh, be the motor or the engine of multiple organ dysfunction. You know, we talk about the gut, but perhaps it's the lung, as you've just outlined. And that, that, of course, leads to the question of where do we go next? What is um, the burgeoning research in this area uh, to address this issue further? So I think there's, there's probably a couple of approaches, broad approaches. One approach is to develop better ventilatory strategies. Prone is a good example. That it's been around for a while, I wouldn't say it's new, but we now know that the prone ventilation, in adults at least, um, decreases mortality substantially. So we want to find ways to decrease uh, ventilator-induced lung injury while we're ventilating patients. The other approach might be to say, well, I know how to get rid of ventilator-induced lung injury completely. How do we do that? Get rid of mechanical ventilation. So how do you do that? Well, one could think about using various extracorporeal modes of uh, gas exchange. And this is something that's been tried over the years. And I would say now is the time to think about um, re-looking at that question. Because 20 years ago, you had to have big devices, lots of tubing, lots of blood, lots of anticoagulation. The side effects of ECMO were certainly greater, I think, than the side effects of mechanical ventilation. 
Now we have better ventilatory modes, so the, si so the side effects of ventilation are decreased, but the side effects of, of various types of ECMO are actually substantially better. You know, we have approaches, we have new membranes, we have new ways to cannulate. So I think that, that this may be another interesting approach that has to be tested. We don't know if it's going to be the case, but it has to be tested because this way we can get rid of ventilator-induced lung injury completely. Just don't ventilate at all. And, and the, third, the third general area, which, is, which take a, would take a while, is if, in fact, biotrauma is the major mechanism killing patients, we could then think about anti-biotrauma therapies, you know, anti-inflammatory therapies directed at mediators released during biotrauma. That one is going to be tough because is it, we don't know if it's one mediator, multiple mediators, et cetera. But that would be another approach that says, you know, in patients we can't do anything with the ventilation. They're, they're, just, um, they're just so sick, their lungs are so sick that we know ventilation is going to cause injury. Maybe we should look at anti-biotrauma therapies. So that's just a few. And, and let me give you one other final example, and that's potentially the use of non-invasive ventilation more often. Um, we know that, that intubating a patient causes a lot of problems. Um, if we could use non-invasive ventilation, maybe extubate patients earlier, put them onto non-invasive ventilation, maybe plus or minus NAVA uh, technique where you can synchronize better and for non-invasive ventilation because leaks are so important, with NAVA you don't have to worry about the leaks, would be another approach that might be useful to try and mitigate ventilator-induced lung injury. Dr. Slusky, this has been a very fascinating overview that you've given us, and uh, we appreciate your coming and discussing um, 30 years and more of uh, what we understand. Don't rub it in. <laughs> of <laughs> what we understand about ventilator-induced lung injury. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.